All right, time for us to begin. Hey, great to see you. Uh, open your Bibles to Book of Esther. We, we're, we're still in the process of looking at some of the big picture messages and what we should see as we uh, will go through the book, possibly beginning next week, and start going uh, through chapter by chapter and then fitting the puzzle pieces in a little more tightly. But for now, it is important that we get a bigger picture of what is going on uh, in the book. So last week we left off at looking just, just at the end of some th comments about the unique character of the book, and I think most of you already have seen uh, how different Esther is, and I will just caution you, it is so different that you will find uh, many, uh, especially uh, Bible students in the past, and some of them quite, uh, quite famous, who would say Esther needs to be thrown out of the Bible. Martin Luther was one of those. Throw it out. It's uh, so secular. It's ridiculous. How could anybody imagine that a godly person uh, would even be uh, listed in the book of Esther? And uh, it's obviously uh, just not something that should be included. So part of, our, part of our challenge here is to examine that since it is one, uh, the only book in the Bible that does not refer to anything religious. Not only does it refer to God, nobody in it refers to God, and, and nobody in it acts in respect to anything God says. So it, it, it is quite unique in, in that matter. So I'm going to hit a few things real quick that we've already fairly, fairly much talked about. We talked last week about Mordecai being a fairly secular uh, individual, not really thinking in terms of anything godly from what we can tell, and encouraging Esther to enter the beauty contest and, and all of that. And so the book is just uniquely uh, a-religious. It, it, uh, you don't see anybody. I mean, not even, you don't even see pagan religion. You don't see anything in it uh, that it, it indicates that anybody really cares about anything spiritual at all. And, uh, and, and I don't know if you've thought about this, but here's Esther and Mordecai and all the Jews that are mentioned in the book. None of them have bothered to go back to Jerusalem when the king said anybody who wants to go back and help the building of Jerusalem and the Pent Temple and all of that, I'll provide the money. You people go back and go back to serving your God. And uh, these are people who didn't go. And, and it, it, it very much gives you the flavor that they, they, they begin to merge into the Persian culture in many, many ways and, and adopt a lot of the uh, culture of, of the Persians. Uh, just the fact that Mordecai and Esther would take part of this uh, uh, one night with the king, uh, uh, Sherrod, I, I think is, is just interesting. So never mentioned is Jerusalem, the hope of Israel, or that the Jews returned. Or, or the Jews who did return and are in Jerusalem at this time undergoing great hardship. No mention of them and what they are going through, which we would see, of course, if we're reading Ezra and Nehemiah and all that these Jews in Jerusalem uh, are going through. So that is the reason we've been studying Esther this way, because the best way to study Esther is, is realize that this is, a, this is a one big picture story. And if you got into too much detail where you're just thinking about detail without 
putting it into the broader picture, then you miss some of the, some of the really great points. One thing I want you to get used to, though, the story is told with a lot of irony, satire, and humor. So don't be afraid to read it and crack up. <laughs> Don't be afraid to read it and go, wow, that is, that's just crazy. You know, it's, and we're going to note some of the, we're going to note a number of those. In fact, as we go through the book, you're just going to want to laugh out loud because it, it becomes so silly. And especially the king himself, I mean, he, he just starts, uh, you just start dying laughing at the guy. He's a dope most of the time. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just making fun of him over and over again and just about how he, he rules. And so as you look at the story, you know, don't be afraid to, to jump in and see that. So this is a, it's like a parable, but it's so long that you, it, it makes its point as a whole unit and, and you interpret it more as a parable as you hit the sections that, that go through it. And, and you will notice that. Uh, each event or section needs to be then uh, seen in the relation of the whole. So Here's something that we, we have mentioned when we just did our quick survey, is the structure of the story then uh, centers around banquets. Uh, I, I think maybe I mentioned on the very, very first night that the word banquet in the NIV is used 20 times in the book. And the word banquet is only used 24 times in the whole rest of the Old Testament. So you realize only four, uh, 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 they're, they're just really inundated with it. And yet the banquet itself is not the message. The banquet sets up these, these reversals of destiny, these changes in the way uh, the, the story is going. And, and it pivots on these banquets over and over again. So that's one thing that we want to pay attention to as we hit various things in the book is just that, that change of pace that comes around uh, the banquet itself. Now, reversal of destiny. We talked about this some, but that reversal of destiny uh, dominates the book. And, and we want to talk about that a little bit more as far as a lesson for us in a moment. But they're just repeated sudden events that come right out of the blue that just that pivots on that and, and you turn the whole story in, a, in another direction. Things that you don't expect, things that are... Uh, the odds against happening are, are, are so low that, that, that you obviously realize uh, something is going on here uh, besides just a story. And, and that's, those are the things that we want to uh, notice as, as well. Um, now, let me define a reversal. I think that's important just to look at this as far as the book is concerned. And it's an event that it's intended to harm the Jews, which against all expectations actually results in the opposite. So you're going to see the direction going, of course, in the direction where the Jews are going to be harmed, and it doesn't look like there's any way they're going to escape it, and then suddenly it's just going to pivot and, and go the other way. So there's that reversal. Now this is not unheard of in Scripture. Uh, we see this uh, the, the, against all odds. The high, uh, this, this book highlights an underlying theme of some unseen power. <laughs> 
and, and that, that just is intruding in world affairs because it, you, you just cannot believe that they're going to escape from what is about to happen. And so it just implies it. That's part of the, what the author's intent is in the book. And as we're going to see, the reason he does not mention the name of God or religion or any of that. He wants to show us that there is this at many times an unseen power that is beyond and behind everything that nobody is going to relate to the event that's taking place. You feel that today? You should. We're just like the days of Esther. We don't have any prophet giving us a message. We don't have any hero that steps up that, that, that says uh, God is, uh, you know, uh, has, has appointed me and called me to come and tell you something. We don't have any of those things. We rely on this unnamed, unseen power that from a secular point of view, nobody would think really is involved in world affairs, even if they uh, don't, you know, even if they believed in him. Uh, th that's, that's not the way they're going to look at it. So that, that unnamed power then uses these really insignificant events that take place throughout the book, even banquets and things like that, to fulfill uh, his, his purpose. And that's the idea. And even though God is not mentioned, his presence and work just screams out on every page. And that's the reason that the author does that. So, again, step back and look at the scene. Jews are far from faithfulness here. And yet, God intervenes to keep his promises, and yet does so without being noticed, so to speak. So, when you examine the condition spiritually of the Jews in the book, you say there is absolutely no reason why God should come to their rescue. Uh, they deserve really everything they get, and there are no miracles. <laughs> what, a, what a book. Absolutely no miracles, no evidence that, that this is actually God working, except for the fact that you keep thinking there's some unseen power here that is, that is coming to, to the rescue. And the best part of the writing is that the author did leave out God's name. That is important because then God becomes more obvious as you read and more amazing as you read. And, and that's really important. Now, that gets us down to spending a little bit of time tonight on the conflict between Haman, Haman and Mordecai. And so let's back some of that up. We've, we've suggested it already. It's been mentioned. Is there is this whole thing about Mordecai not bowing to Haman? Does it have something to do with Haman being an Agagite, etc.? And so let's, let's back that up and, and give some confirmation to it. Uh, let's read some passages very quickly here. Go back to Exodus 17. Exodus 17, and we will, this whole text is, if you want to read all of 8 through 16, that's, that's great. But this is when they just left uh, Egyptian bondage. Uh, in fact, uh, they left in chapter 13 <laughs> and 14, you know, uh, is when they crossed the Red Sea. And, uh, and so now we have to 17, and the first thing that comes about is that the Amalekites come and fight against 
Israel uh, really not no sooner than, than they just get to cross the Red Sea and get settled in. Uh, so notice especially uh, verse 13. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I were utterly, utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay, so consider that last part. The Amalekites are a nomadic people, so there's tribes of them in different places. So the Amalekites that attacked at this particular point aren't necessarily all the Amalekites in the whole, whole world. And we see pockets of them repeatedly over and over again. So you can see what God says. He says, you're going to blot them out, but it's going to take generation after generation after generation to get that to happen. So we could fairly well cons consider, as was briefly mentioned last week by Alan, uh, by Sherry and John, that when Mordecai lets him, says, um, I'm not bowing to him, and then lets himself, let them know I'm a Jew. He, there, there's that underlying suggestion here that he's aware of who, uh, who Haman is, and he has no intention to bowing to that creep. <laughs> that's, just, that's just the way he's looking at it. And he knows this battle that's going on. Let's confirm this a little bit more. Go to Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25 and uh, verse 17. So here the Lord says, Remember what Amalek... Uh, did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget Okay, so consider that. They're getting ready to enter the promised land. They're just over the border when Deuteronomy is given. And he says, when you get in there and you've taken care of all the enemies, which takes six, seven years, and when you get that all done, then I want you to hunt them down. I want you to take them out. And, and thus, of course, we later see in 1 Samuel 15, King Saul, son of Kish, we see King Saul then, the one who uh, is told by, by God to destroy all the Amalekites, and he doesn't. He leaves King Agag alive, and again, even though Samuel comes and kills the king, after that, there are still other Amalekites that have not been destroyed yet. Because, again, there are different tribes and nomadic people, etc., which is the reason we have an Agagite <laughs> that is here now the most powerful guy in the world, uh, of the Persian world, other than King Ahasuerus. And he's probably not as powerful, uh, King Ahasuerus, I'm not sure, is as powerful as, as, uh, as Haman is at this particular point. So you can see the, the helpless condition uh, that they're in. And, uh, and, the, and uh, in the book of Esther, it specifically mentions when Haman is introduced 
uh, is there, I think, the beginning there of, of chapter 2. Let me get back to uh, uh, Esther here. But when he is introduced, he is referred to as in his lineage uh, in uh, verse 5 of chapter 2. Now there was a Jew in, in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So you see his background. And then the fact that Haman is an Agagite uh, sets him back to the same period of time where Samuel was told to destroy the Amalekites. So, so there's that subtlety then that, that takes place there. So I think it's a, it is a justifiable conclusion that this is probably what's going on between Mordecai and Haman when he refuses to bow. And it would be incorrect to say, well, a Jew wasn't about anybody. That's not true. They bowed to their own kings. They bowed to others. But he's not going to, to give uh, any kind of homage uh, to Haman. All right, I've done a bunch of talking there. Any questions or comments uh, there to add to any of this? I know we're hitting some of this fast. But we're going to have a discussion in just a minute, and I want to have plenty of time uh, for, that, uh, for that discussion. So this battle then between Mordecai and Haman is just a continuation then of the war from the very beginning of Israel's history. They were the first to come and attack Israel, and it was just unprovoked, and they did it just because they saw Israel that was weak at the time. And so this has just gone on from generation to generation, and that's what God said would happen. So this war, is, it's a critical key, so here's a little subtlety, that links the Jews of the diaspora with the covenant of God made with the forefathers at, at Sinai. Even though there's nothing that seems righteous about these Jews that are in the diaspora here, the fact that God would come and protect them and actually reverse the story is an indication in the background again that God still remembers his covenant with his people going all the way back uh, to Sinai. And, and so that is, I think, important. And, and again, Israel, just like the days of Moses, Israel is at their weakest point. They're completely at the mercy of the Persians, completely at the mercy of this wicked man, Haman. And he is the right-hand man, and guess who he is? He's an Agagite. I mean, if you're, an, if you're a Jew, you're an Israelite reading this, that just blows off the page as soon as you see that. You just go, oh, <laughs> I can see clearly now what this is all about. This is the reason that Mordecai objects to paying homage to him, and this whole thing just keeps going on. Okay? We good? All right. Um, so, uh, again, about this conflict, uh, again, they have no king, they have, <laughs> Jews have no king, no army, no prophet, no land, no temple, no priesthood, and no sacrifices. Would anybody think that they're going to be saved for this? In fact, you could argue easily they're under the curse of God, are they not? Deuteronomy 28, you're going to be scattered into all the nations, you're going to become a hiss and a byword, you're going to, you know, all of this stuff, and, and, and they are, they are um, suffering from 
just exactly what God said would happen to them in Deuteronomy 28. And, and I would imagine you would talk to any Israelite who was out in that, any Jew that was in the Persian Empire out there and say, do you think you have any hope in this situation? Nope. <laughs> we deserve it. We, this is what God said would happen to us uh, when we were disobedient. And, and we're not much better now. So that would be uh, part of this. So it's again a reminder that even when God's people fail, God's covenant stands. Why? Because he made the promise to Abraham and to David that he, his steadfast love would never be removed even if they turned away from him. And that's repeated in Romans 3 and verse 3, where uh, he points out that even, even, though, even though Israel was faithless, God is still faithful. And, and that's where you see, and of course, now we're seeing how this affects us. Right? <laughs> if this doesn't happen, if, all, if there is no reversal here, and all the Jews are destroyed, the promises of God come to an end. Now, how many times do we see those kinds of things happening in the Bible? Quite often. And if it weren't for Esther and the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild, uh, they, even they would have eventually uh, been destroyed. So the building of the temple would have ended, the building of Jerusalem, the people who, who are uh, the remnant who went back, they'd be destroyed. This, this whole... Um, effort <laughs> would have basically come to an end and all the things that God said in the prophets would have come to an end. So you can see the reversal doesn't happen then everything God promised we would see falling apart which is another reason why it's hard not to see God the unseen unmentioned power beneath the story. Okay so a lot of what I'm doing right now is giving you a strong argument for the fact that this is a biblical book and, and we need to uh, treat it as such. Uh, if, if, by the way, if any of you did not get the, uh, the, the notes that are up here, I have in notes, but I think we ran out. I handed them out last week. You can email me and I will send you a copy. Uh, now, here's what I wanted to spend the last part of the time talking about, and that is the providence of God. Es the book of Esther is uh, even though you see providence of God throughout the Bible, the book of Esther is probably the strongest um, uh, piece of literature in Scripture that would scream to us what, it, what the providence of God <clears throat> is all about. And, uh, and let's just define it. This, this comes from uh, Karen Jobes, who, by the way, if you ever want to, to read a, a very... Um, well, let me put it this way. I think I said this to, to David the other day. Uh, I have a lot of commentaries, and I've read a lot of commentaries, etc. And uh, almost none of them could I sit down and just read like a book. Both of the commentaries Karen Jobes has, has written uh, that I that I'm have, First Peter and Esther, you can literally sit down and read it like it's a book. She, she, all women ought to write commentaries, I guess, if they could do it the well, as well as Karen Jobes. Uh, I, I, after I, every time I read her, I think, is there a way I could meet her? I would just love to have a cup of coffee with her and just listen to her. She is brilliant. Uh, anyway, here's her definition. God in some invisible and in 
inscrutable way governs all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. That's a pretty good uh, definition. So there's no miracle, you know, <laughs> and all that. And, uh, and, and yet, you keep seeing the work of God. And, uh, and, and this is really interesting then to discuss and talk about. So even though God seems absent and no one acknowledges him, he's still ruling. And that's what we learned in Daniel, remember? God is still ruling in the king's, kingdoms of men. It was obvious in Daniel. He's sending visions and all of these things. And, and, and Daniel is uh, saved from the lion's den. There's miracles galore. But when you get in that book of Esther... Uh, there's, no, there's none of that. And yet, God is not absent. And God is, is still uh, working. So, uh, even working then when many questionable and sinful decisions are made by Mordecai and Esther. Now, I want you to think about, can you think of other incidents in Scripture in which God works through sinful actions? Of his people and other and others. Cross. Yeah, the cross is the most obvious, isn't it? God uses the sinfulness of those who crucified Jesus, whether you're talking about the Jews or the Romans, he uses the sinfulness of them to save mankind. So you keep seeing, you see that over and again. Listen to Abraham's life. Wow, he goes down to Egypt, lies about his wife. Uh, she gets taken by Pharaoh, and, uh, and if God doesn't intervene, reversal. If God doesn't intervene, whoo! I mean, everything's going to just go up like a nuclear bomb as far as the plan of God. <laughs> Pharaoh's going to take Sarah and make her his wife. And, uh, and I, I'm imagining Abraham going over here, wringing his hands, going, uh-oh, <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> and Sarah's up there going, help! <laughs> this man's going to bring me into his chamber at any moment. <laughs> you know? And of course, if it's not for God plaguing Pharaoh and Pharaoh responding, unlike the future Pharaoh, and, and, and going to Abraham and rebuking him, and yet Abraham walks away from the situation scot-free and loaded with goodies from Pharaoh. <laughs> becomes a wealthy man just because he goes in. I mean, it's you're just like, what? <laughs> and you see God acting in spite of man's foolishness many times. Joseph is another good example of the sin of his brothers provided a way for that. Exactly. Exactly. The sin of Joseph's brothers of selling your own brother and pretending, uh, getting your dad to believe he's dead and watching him grieve for 22 years and all of this. And when it's all said and done, um, Joseph goes, you know, guys, if that hadn't happened, I mean, as dumb as you were, <laughs> if that hadn't happened, we'd all been dying of hunger right now. <laughs> so God continues to work in action. So that when you get a feel of God's providence, you're realizing that he is always behind the scene. John. There's two aspects that relate to this book. It's have much longer lasting impacts that are a little bit more esoteric, but both Xerxes and his father invaded Greece 
and were stopped. So his father was stopped at Marathon, right. which certainly had to have been God. And then Darius was, I mean, Xerxes was stopped at Thermopylae with the 300. Yeah. If that would not have happened, if God would not have stopped the Persians there, the Romans would never come to power. Then the yeah. situation would not Domino. have been for Christ. <laughs> yeah. So it, he literally is playing four-dimensional chess with all these people that they have no idea what's yeah. going on. Yeah. And they're great. Too, yeah, so. yeah and, and just as John said, the more you know about history, the more you see these things and can see God behind the scenes because the rest of history affects the coming of the Messiah, the period of time. The Romans are very important to God's uh, design for the, for the gospel to go out to the whole world. Because of the just the, the the common Greek language that was spoken throughout the world at the time, and the free highways, I said freeway system, as a Californian would say, the, the, the whole highway system and how things went. I mean, everything was set up like like uh, Paul would say in the full for the fullness of time, when it was just the perfect time. Uh, so there's so much uh, yes that that could be said about that. So there's nothing unusual. The point of that being. When you read this in the book of Esther, and you might go, oh, that's terrible. No, there's nothing unusual about that. You, you, we, we see that often. So you can draw that similar conclusion then throughout biblical history. Uh, now we can also see then why the book is written as it is, without an explanation or interpretation or connection to God, because he wants us to, that idea of God's providence and God's working behind the scenes, he wants that to really blow up in our eyes. He wants it to really come to the forefront. By the way, one of the best illustrations of providence and our working in God's kingdom that I think I ever read, it, it, and I'll just summarize it to you. Uh, I should have maybe looked it up and just read it to you, but, but it, it, uh, it was illustrated as some of the great artisans of old who would produce these huge tapestries, <clears throat> and they would be absolutely enormous. And those who put the threads in the tapestry would be on pedestals and platforms at various spots behind the tapestry. And the, the artist would be in front and he would be calling out different sectors of the tapestry, threads that would go through, colors of threads, things like this. And as that's being produced, of course, the the people behind the scenes that are putting in the threads have no idea what the picture looks like. And the, art, the artist is so great that if one of the workers behind the scenes puts the thread through in the wrong place or maybe the wrong color, the artist is so good at his, at his ability and talent that he, without, without missing a step, he doesn't ask them to take it out. He simply weaves it into a greater picture. And it's only at the end that he invites the workers to come around on the other side and see what has been produced. Remind you of us, okay? So your work in God's kingdom, never ever think of it as, oh, I was just a small thing. That was just a little thread. No, it's not a small thing. It's not just a little thread. Every little piece that we put in, though seemingly nothing, ends up to produce God's great picture. And he's using us 
as those who will bring about his purpose. So, so I think that's just a great way of looking at that and thinking about how God's providential care and his work in bringing about his will uh, is, is there. Yeah, Adam. Some of this makes me think of some of the parenting conversations we've had around, as parents, we strive to teach our children about the Lord and we want them to be faithful. And we may ask each other, like, how do we do that? And sometimes at some point you have to come to realize, like, um, I can only do so much. There's choice. And, and um, if I'm if I, almost putting too much burden on myself that I have to parent perfectly is prideful. And it puts me in a position where I'm almost certainly going to fail at some point. And, and I think sometimes when we think about how we work and serve, we may spend a lot of time thinking about making the perfect choice or if I don't do the right thing, this God, this, this isn't going to work out. And we can actually step back a little bit and say, well, I can't really hinder God's plan. I can choose to do all I can to help it. And, and give up some of that pride and arrogance and really sometimes unnecessary guilt as though I can hinder what, if I do the wrong thing, well, God's plan is just totally hoes yeah. <laughs> what's going to happen in the situation, as opposed to saying, I can choose the next best, I can do the next right thing. And in truth, with so many of these things, if you look at them too close, you can't see the providence of God. Because yeah. there's so many situations that are really, really bad that happen on the surface, and some that are really, really good, and we think that one is the providence of God, one is the work of the devil. And it's not until you've had time yeah. to zoom out and see the long-term play yeah. that you actually understand, oh, a lot of these things that look good, whether it's a job or money or certain relationships, or yeah, those are actually the bad things that happen. To yeah. God. And then the good things were actually the struggle or strife that God brought to you exactly. to, to see and, and grow through. Yeah, um, excellent. see that closer. Yeah, excellent point. By the way, just to add to that, uh, when we were doing our parenting class a couple years ago in the back, one of the things that uh, I was pointing out in there is there's two kinds of parents. And there's the parent who sees their children as owned by God, and they as a parent are simply stewards, caretakers for another's goods. My kids are not my kids. These are God's kids they've given to me for a short period of time. And, and my job is to be a good steward of that. So that at the end, I don't get glory, nor do I take on all of the guilt of whatever took place. I, I, I place that in God's hands. And, uh, and yet, then there's other kinds of parents that for them, it's like they're mine and I'm going to be the, res the responsible party to make them end up where they ought to be. And those kind of parents tend to be uh, really authoritarian and actually ruin God's product. <laughs> so it, it is, uh, to back up exactly what Adam is saying, that's the moral way we, we need to look at life in general, whether it's our children or anybody else. We need to look at that as this is God's, I am a steward of his goods, and therefore I am going to do the best I can to be a good steward 
but, uh, but I cannot pl- be placed in God's, uh, God's position there. Very good. So we're urged then, and this is what we've been doing, hasn't it? We've been urged to puzzle over this story in order so that we can emerge on the other side and really be truly amazed at, uh, at what God has done. Uh, so consider then what this story does for us. And here's where you come down to, I think, some cool applications. Uh, imagine being a Jew of that day and uh, looking at them from the outside, at least after the fact. The Jews don't know what we know. Uh, I wonder how often they thought, is God going to rescue us? Is God there? Does God even care about what we're going through right now? They have no idea the end of this. To them, in the middle of the story, every Jew is going to be killed in a few months. And since the Persian Empire is run by a dictator and worse, uh, Haman and Agagite, we are absolutely doomed. And, and they, they would have looked at things with absolutely no hope. Do we do, do we do, do we do that all the time in our lives? We get to a point and it's, we're just, it, it's so low that we, we think this is the most hopeless situation I can imagine. Um, when you study the book of Job, you get a good definition of a true trial. And there's a lot of parts to that. But one of the definition, one of the ways you spot it, is when you are going through something in life where, as far as you can see, there is absolutely no light at the end of the tunnel. You cannot imagine that there's going to be a good end to this. And, and it just seems like it is absolutely hopeless. And that's when you look back at that trial, and what do you realize? God was there. You can see it at the time. It doesn't pop out at you. You don't get a revelation in the middle of the night. <laughs> you don't get any of those things, but God was there. And that's one of the things that we study the book of Job. You see Elihu saying those kinds of things to Job, saying, you don't see, but he always is there. And, and the most beautiful thing in the book of Job is, is when Elihu introduces God, he starts talking about a tornado that's coming up and in the middle of the, of the desert and how the rain is starting to come and the lightning. And he just starts to say, the lightning is his eyes flashing. The thunder is the sound of his voice. And then he uh, basically is saying, God has been in the middle of the storm the whole time. And he introduces God. <laughs> and God takes over from chapter 37. It's a really cool, cool story. Mark. I was thinking, why didn't he just take out Haman to begin with? But the Jews had relief from their enemies. Not only were they not destroyed, yeah. they destroyed their enemies. That's right. They had built the wall. That's right. They didn't overcome some of the enemies they had. Probably yeah. not. They were, it was even hard for them to build the wall. Yeah. And, that, and that's, that's, uh, that's, that's a beautiful point, is that it's not just we were spared. It's that we were victorious. And, and that's the way God treats 
the enemies of his people. That's exactly right. Very, very powerful there. So this is not just history, but it's a prophecy of future salvation. As we can see, if not for this, there's no Messiah, there's no kingdom. All of the promises that God has made uh, does not come to pass. Uh, so consider the history of Israel leading up to the Messiah. Uh, death and extermination were at the door always. Abraham and Sarah. How does the hope look? <laughs> As Paul says in Romans, uh, Abraham believed against hope. He had hope that was against all hope. That there was no reason to believe and accept this. And yet he, he, he was faithful and believed that God could bring about even that which did not exist into existence. And you see that reversal time and time and time again as God lets Israel get to the point where you say there's no hope now. And then God brings it back uh, from the brink. And you see these sudden reversals over and again from Abraham all the way to the Messiah, which always is telling us, without God, we're dead. And God's always bringing life from the dead. Why is Sarah barren? Why is Rebecca barren? Why is um, Hannah barren? Why, you know, you keep seeing that over and over and over again. And God is just saying time and time again, if not for me, you don't live. He wants to get that squared in our mind that we are dead without him and he is the only source of life. And that's seen in this, just these events that take place uh, over and again. Uh, the deliverance of Esther also prepares us the way for the deliverance of the Messiah and for a Jew and Gentile alike. Would you just imagine how the devil was, was jumping for joy when the nails went into Jesus' hands? Victory. And three days later, Jesus comes up out of the grave and crushes him. Oof. Greatest reversal of all is just a scene right there. And it's talked about Romans 5, 12 through 20, where in Adam all die in Christ. All are made alive. And you, you see that, uh, that great picture uh, that's there. So I love what Job said about this, Karen Job. She says, Jesus took the death that was our destiny so that we could have the life that was his. Uh, very pretty words. Only a woman would think that well, I think. <laughs> uh, so providence and discovering God's will for our lives. I want you to think about this. And when, boy, I'm running out of time. I thought, didn't think I was going to have to. Uh, um, but I, I'd love for you to listen. Karen Jobes, in her book, mused about her early years after first uh, dedicating herself to the Lord. And she said this, uh, I remember being obsessed with trying to find God's will for my life when I became a Christian 25 years ago. I and my other recently converted Christian friends in college talked endlessly about how we would know God's will, whether we could possibly miss God's will, and what would happen to us if we did. God's will is, of course, important to the Christian seeking seriously to live for Christ. But as a young and uninformed Christian, I had a flawed understanding of how to know God's will for my life. Ever known people like this? 
You know, people are just looking for God's will in their life. What's God's will? What's God's will in my life? I'm trying to discover God's will in my life. This is what she was struggling with when she was younger. So she says, I was looking for something to happen, for a sign that would clearly tell me where God wanted me to be and what he wanted me to be doing. I was sure, but wrong, that God would test my commitment to Christ through something like sending an angel to tell me to do something I dreaded in a place I would not want to go. <clears throat> I failed to realize that God's will for my life was being revealed day by day in the unfolding of ordinary events. The true test is living for Christ at the present moment in the place where it, where on happen you happen to be in the whatever situation one finds herself or himself. I was just going ching. Exactly. Stop looking for something to tell you what God's will is for your life. Live every day serving God and seeking to do his will based on where you are and the events that are taking place. There you go. There is the way God uh, operates. And I thought it was just a, a beautiful uh, conclusion that she, that she gave to the book. And I had just a couple more things. But was that a bell? Yeah, it was a bell. Yucky bells. <laughs> the bells. Again. <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll, we'll maybe give a couple things. But we're, be prepared. Next week we will actually get into uh, chapter by chapter and discuss the events of each chapter then in more detail. So remember, so we can take now and look at the puzzle pieces and place them in the framework that we have uh, examined. So great job.